Welcome to Deeper Levels. Today's show is the second in my series, YGYN Pathology, where I'm reaching out to specialists in one of my fields to figure out how they chose to focus in this area. Today's show features, in order, three amazing guests, Dr. Carlos Paraharan, Dr. Esther Oliva, and Dr. Blake Jilks. I hope that you enjoy listening to these as much as I did recording them. Now, here's the show. Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science, mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest and fellow GYN pathology specialist, Dr. Carlos Paraharan. Dr. Paraharan went to medical school at the Universidad Nacional de Colombia in Bogota and completed his pathology residency at the University of Miami in Florida, followed by fellowships in women's and perinatal pathology at Brigham and Women's Hospital and breast pathology at the University of Toronto, Sunnybrook Health Science Center in Toronto. After rising to the rank of associate professor at the University of Toronto, Dr. Paraharan recently moved back to the States and as of July 1, is now a pathologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital. In an effort to characterize our field of GYN pathology more fully, I have asked Dr. Paraharan here today as part of my series on GYN pathology, where I'm talking to specialists about why they chose this area and what's happening in our field now. Dr. Paraharan, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm good. Uh, good. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I've heard all the other podcasts that you've put together, including the series on GYN pathology, and it's a privilege to uh, to join you on the series. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think everyone should hear your story, so this is exciting. Thanks for joining me. Um, oh, so aside from the things that I've read above, could you tell us about yourself and how you came to work where you are now? Yeah, well, I'm from Colombia, so that means many things. I love food. Uh, I love dancing. Uh, <laughs> I love my family. Uh-huh. Uh, check, uh, check, check. That all sounds yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, and um, fortunately, other th- yeah, it, lately, I don't really uh, do a lot of stuff outside of work, uh, mm-hmm. mostly because... I become a workaholic. <laughs> well, I've been a workaholic all my life. Uh, okay. But especially since I entered in, uh, into the field of pathology, uh, which is a field that I really, really love, and mm-hmm. I don't see myself doing anything else. You're so, how did you choose pathology? You said you love pathology. How did yeah. you decide that that's what you wanted to do? Uh, well, I don't. It, in my life, it's always or usually been about figuring out first what I don't like and then okay. and then by a defaulting process I, I end up like finding what I really like uh, okay so so when I was in medical school I realized well I love pathology in Colombia you have a European model even to this day you have a European model of education in medical schools oh, okay. where, where the first half of the training is is fully devoted to basic sciences biochemistry anatomy mm-hmm. histology and then eventually you transition into pathology uh, which is the first of the medical of the clinical fields that uh, that you see uh, and at that point I fell in love with it I, I mm-hmm. thought it was the perfect way to integrate the previous two years of basic science training that I had um, mm-hmm. to bring all that information all that knowledge into the clinical realm um, and after that, 
came all the clinical rotations in internal medicine, pediatrics, obstetrics, and I really didn't uh, fit mm -hmm. or I didn't really enjoy it as much as I enjoyed pathology. So uh, uh, it was kind of a process of exclusion of, well, let's give pediatrics a, a try or let's give psychiatry a try and it mm -hmm. never clicked the way pathology did. So, That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so I, so I went back to pathology and uh, the last year of medical school in Columbus, an internship where a year okay. of practice and I did it in pathology. At that point, I knew that's what was going to happen. So every medical student in Columbia gets exposure to pathology just as a normal course of study, kind I, of? not just yeah. in the classroom. Like you actually get to see a practicing pathologist do their job. No, unfortunately, that no. You, yeah, that doesn't really happen here. So I was going to be surprised if it did there because it's it's not happening here either. I think that's one of our problems. So. It is a huge problem yeah. here in North America. I would yeah. say that medical school students in Colombia, that's changing, but it, that still get a little bit more exposure to pathology as a field because mm -hmm. there's a module of pathology and, and it's uh -huh. given, given by pathologists and it's uh -huh. mostly in the classroom but mm -hmm. there are also there are also labs where you see glass lights or even gross specimens and a pathologist basically guides you through the thinking process of a pathologist yeah. and why this uh, uh, pathologic approach to disease is so important yeah so that, yeah. that's and, like yeah. you know years ahead or uh, miles more of exposure than what we have here in North America, right? We don't even have that in, in, in current um, medical yeah. training, right? Yeah, they've sort of uh, part, they've they sort of teased everything out and made it all organ system based. So mm -hmm. yeah, you get to see the students for a couple of weeks and then you don't see them again for a long time. And when I was in medical school here, actually not that long ago, it was still, you know, six month pathology course with pathologists teaching you about pathology, which is just different than it is now. But um, really yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the only way I knew about pathology is because I was a phlebotomist and I knew pathologists. Oh, I knew them really? personally. Yeah. So I think it's, and I was just like you, I went through medical school and I thought, well, I can't do that. I'm, I can't do that. And I can't do that. So uh -huh. I was like, but these folks seem like they're having a good time. Um, so I'll go exactly talk to it's them. Just about exposure. Like we, yeah. you and I found the field because somehow yeah. we got exposed to it enough, yeah. right? To realize that, you know, that mm -hmm. was a happy place. Yeah. Happy place. I like that. Yeah. I actually do love my job. I right now COVID has made it hard because I love teaching and I love being across the scope and I don't feel like it's necessarily safe to do that, at least in the amount we were doing it before. So yeah. I'm really looking forward to this phase being over for multiple reasons. That's just sure. like way down the list, but it's definitely one of them. Um, no. So you, I know you just changed jobs, so maybe you can't quite speak to this question like other people were. And if you want to sort of, you know, make a mashup of your job in Toronto plus this job, what what's a normal work day like for you? And keeping in mind that you work at an academic institution. So what are you doing in a day? Well, my my day usually starts early. Mm -hmm. uh, even in those days where I really don't feel like getting out of bed, I try to do <laughs> try my best to, to make it a, a very early day. Because and what what's going through your head? Like, what's your uh, what's your positive thinking that get gets your feet on the floor in the morning? If you don't mind my asking. Well, it's, it, most of the times it's just like, oh my God, I have stuff to do. Like, get out. 
Okay. Not gonna get done by itself. The to-do so. list. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. That's lovely. Lovely. Okay. So well, early that, to rise. Yeah. That added, and realistically speaking, to the fact that, uh, but I've always lived in big cities. Toronto is a huge oh. city, and, and Boston yeah. is not as big, but it's also a hectic, chaotic city mm-hmm. with awful traffic. So right. it's my second big motivation to get out of the house early is to be traffic, right? I see. Mm-hmm. So you're up and out the door. You don't work from home in the morning. You just go straight in. Yes, I go. Okay. Yeah, I go straight okay. to, my, to my office. And usually, the first thing I do is is kind of catch up with emails. I fell into this routine of never letting things pile up, mm-hmm. and that includes cases, mm-hmm. uh, includes emails, and includes mm-hmm. like to do you know tasks that I put in my to do list. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I, and it's probably my OCD speaking at this point. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I really, I really don't like uh, letting things accumulate. And so, so even during the day when I'm sitting in my office and I'm looking at cases in the microscope, if there is a time where an, an email comes in and I just glance over it, it's, if it's something that I can deal with quickly, I do it. But uh-huh. yeah, that. I have to say, it works for me. Uh-huh. It allows me to be very efficient with my time and with the things that I have on the go, right? Um, okay. Now, and how do you feel about your, your stack sitting on your desk, staring you down yeah. from the table? Does it bother you? It really bothers me. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, okay. no, it's, it becomes an obsession. Like uh, yeah. every morning I grab my stack or stack for the day. Mm-hmm. I don't have a trainee. Uh, working with me that day, you know, it will just come with me to my office. And then I'll start with the emails. But once I'm done with the emails, like, which will take me 15 minutes to half an hour, you know, I start working with my cases and it, I don't let it go until I'm finished with it. So you just go through them all in one big, just get them done. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I take breaks and, and sometimes that takes me half a day. Sometimes that takes me a day and a half, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. yes, it's kind of, it's again, that obsession of mm-hmm. not letting things pile up uh, mm-hmm. that, that kind of pushes me to do it as efficiently and as, yeah. but as yeah. thoroughly, thoroughly as possible too, right? Yeah. Um, right. So yeah, that's, and, and even when I have a, a trainee working with me, uh, which is usually the case. I organize it in a way that that taking care of my clinical work becomes the the, the priority or, or what I will dedicate most of my day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been fortunate enough that in the in the institutions where I worked in in Toronto and now in Boston, I have dedicated off service time. Mm-hmm. So those days are very different. I, I do my best to finish my clinical work during my service days. Uh, so I can have some flexibility during my off-service days. And in those days, what I basically do is once I, I catch up with emails, I create uh, a list of, that, of tasks to tackle mm-hmm. during the week. And, uh, and I you know, cross them off one by one. And if I find myself with nothing to do, I go back to the list and there is always something to do in the list. Of course. Is the list on a piece of paper or is it on the computer? It's in the computer. Okay. Sometimes it's in a piece of paper because oh, so it's, it it. Yeah, I'm an in the bus. So I just pull out my phone or 
pull out my note my notebook and and write it down. Uh, I'm not okay. that organized. <laughs> okay, okay. I didn't know. I also am someone who makes lists on all different kinds of medium. Um, one other fa- question I was thinking about: when you organize, do you organize your stack of cases? And if so, do they go from hardest to easiest, or easiest to hardest? Yeah. yeah. I usually try to put my easier cases at the bottom of the stack. Personally. Oh, really? Um, I have a friend who goes the other way. She's like, no, I got to get warmed up. And, you know, Dr. Kerman always used to say, you put the easier cases at the bottom and then it feels like you're going downhill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I don't I don't think I do that because... No, you just take them as they come. I that's, think even, that's a, yes. I, I actually, if anything, I, I, ordered, them, I ordered them uh, by date sequence. Oh, okay, because, okay. Uh, you know, the, I, I start with the oldest case, like some okay. have a big resection that has been sitting, you know, there's been already a few days. Is there a certain like event or person who um, made you want to be a GYN pathologist? Um, no. I, you drew I, it out of a hat? You just decided today I'll be a GYN pathologist? <laughs> Kind of. Well, kind of. Really? No, I've okay, never okay. been able to articulate an answer to that question. Okay. And I think it's because it was mostly a gut feeling. Oh. Uh, there were these other, all these you know, many diverse specialties that you're exposed to during residency. Okay. And, and uh, GYN was the one that attracted me the most. Okay. I think it's because of it's diversity. Yes. Not just one thing. Like you have a diversity of organs, a diversity mm-hmm. of diseases, like neoplastic yes. and non-neoplastic. Uh, and so, even gestational and, you know. Exactly. Yeah, and and yeah. actually, and, and I, I love the fact that there was a lot of integration with the physiology of the female reproductive system, mm-hmm. gestation, the hormonal cycle, uh, mm-hmm. menopause. Uh, yeah. and, and I love that fact. And um, so I, I, that's the best I can do, but, but I, I go back so, to the fact that it was, it was a gut feeling. Like if, if you ask me, what do I like? And, and it was always first like you pathology. I'm the same way, but I think it was because it was a combination of having a good exposure to the specimens as a, as a resident, because we had tons of GYN and perinatal pathology, mm-hmm. but also the people who were doing it were excellent. Yeah, it, it was your gut feeling you were made to do this, obviously. So can you tell me about, I read in your um, CV, this program you did called the William J. Harrington Program for Latin America. Did this play a role in your interest in pathology? Uh, not really at that point. Mm-hmm. At that point, uh, when I in, oh, in the you were point, sold. Okay, I, was, I already knew I wanted mm-hmm. to be a pathologist. Now, the the William J. Harrington program it's uh, aimed to expose uh, medical students or practicing doctors from Latin America to mm-hmm. uh, medicine in the U.S. It's, it's mostly aimed at people interested in internal medicine. The vast oh. majority of the rotations offered by the program at least when I was in, in the program, were internal medicine rotations. Oh. Uh, so when I showed up, I applied for it, and they accepted me, and then they asked me, what rotations do you want? And I said, pathology. You know, mm-hmm. I was probably the first person. <laughs> that they yeah, they were like, uh, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What? Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, they made it work. And the people in the Department of Pathology at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, like, uh-huh. me with open arms. 
and it was because at the, at the end of the day it was about exposing me to uh, how pathology works uh, in a system like the North American system right uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. that's the main purpose of the program yeah uh, so it worked uh, and and I, it also gave me the opportunity to know uh, very good pathologists and very good mentors at Jackson mm-hmm. Memorial Hospital that also got to know my my skills and my interest and my passion for the field. And yeah. I, I eventually got a residency spot in the program. Awesome. So, yeah, wow. yeah. It, like opened, it opened the doors. Yeah. yeah, that's great. I was wondering how that worked and, uh, I mean, how you became involved in it. So it's great that it helped you land where you are now. So... You are widely published is a understatement in the field of pathology. My side question is, are you tired? <laughs> Which <laughs> you can answer or not. Exhausted. Exhausted. Okay, good. You hear that everyone? He's exhausted. exhausted. But he, yeah. And it seems that you focus in part on cervical cancer, but you um, have a wide range of topics. Can you tell me what your experience was like when you got started in research and how you came to put your focus where it is. If you consider yourself focused, maybe you th- don't think of yourself that way. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I think I, I, uh, I'm focused to a point. Mm-hmm. Um, it started with my fellowship. I, I, I didn't, I, unfortunately, I don't have a single project in GYN pathology that came out of my residency program. Uh, mm-hmm. I did a few projects, but none of them were in GYN. My mm-hmm. research track record in GYN pathology started with my fellowship. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was very fortunate to work with people like Marisa Nucci and, and Chris Crum at the Brigham, uh, who really put me in the right track. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I realized that doing research and being an academic pathologist was actually a lot of fun. Uh, and I, I said I, I'm exhausted because <laughs> doing research to me is something between a passion and an addiction. Oh, wow. <laughs> so okay. It's something that, that you love to do because I, I, you're always finding something that makes you question a case or makes you question uh, what do we know about something or what mm-hmm. we don't know about something. And, and why that is important. And when you dig a little into that and find something that is potentially valuable for the academic community or for the scientific community, it's very gratifying. I have to say right. that, that that is very satisfying. And that's probably mm-hmm. where the addiction component comes. Mm-hmm. That's where you get the rush from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then you want to do it again. You, you want to, yeah. because you feel like you're into something and, and you feel like you never answered the question fully. Right. Uh, so you keep right. on. And that like, leads me to, you know, explain like how things have happened for me to an extent. I'm, I'm focused on certain things. Like a, a lot of my research has been focused on endocervical adenocarcinomas mm-hmm. and uh, and it just it just starts with uh, an initial question or a, in, an initial statement in this particular case it was at the end of my fellowship we were looking at a difficult case where half the people wanted to say adenocarcinoma in situ and the other mm-hmm. half felt it was an invasive adenocarcinoma and that happens all the time and Brad Quady at yes. the program said you know this needs a biomarker 
And I thought, uh. yeah, that needs a biomarker. You know, we need to find a way to be able, be able to tell if something uh-huh. is invasive or not. And uh, that question came around the same time that Elvia Silva and his group published the, the pattern-based investigation, pattern. which I yeah. thought was probably part of the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. So I started my research on that. And one study uh, answers a question or partially answers a question, but then it gives you three more questions to answer. So you keep going and, and one thing leads to another. And here you are with you know five different studies trying to you know uh, explain the whole picture, right? Something yeah. similar has happened with ovarian cancer. I've done some studies with ovarian mucinous carcinomas, more recently with endometrioid and clear cell carcinomas. But mm-hmm. honestly, the story of all those is, is really connected, right? You find something mm-hmm. in ovarian endometrioid cancers and the logical question at some point was, well, what about clear cells? Is the, do we think it's the same case, right? So mm-hmm. mm-hmm. clear cell carcinomas. And mm-hmm. then you find that grading system for endometrioid carcinomas is really not that well explored. Uh, mm-hmm. Explore it. And at the end, you figure out, well, the same could be said about mucinous carcinomas. So let's talk about uh, grading for endometri- for, for mucinous carcinomas as well. So yeah, so, so years pass by and you end up with a, a number of interesting questions or attempts to answer them, mm-hmm. but they're all interrelated. Yeah. Yeah. And your, your office is probably one of those that just has like lots of slides pulled yeah. for different studies in little groups. And yeah, I can picture it. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. My office is like that, but it probably doesn't compels in comparison to yours. So it's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One idea. And then it's kind of like a weed, like you pull it and then like three other ones come up. It's great. You sound like someone who has a good system too. I think that's part of the, it's like juggling things and yeah. having a bunch of things in the air at the same time. So you just have to be able to keep your eye on the ball and keep everything moving, you know, cause it's, it involves so many stages. So. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially, you know, in all projects, like there are very few projects that you can do by yourself or just with your trainee or with a couple of people. Yeah. It, most projects require input from a lot of, of people I, I i always try to include at least one other colleague in the field uh, right even if you think you figure it out and you have it under control it's good to have another brain to look at your project from a different perspective because yeah most of the times you're you're already biased about something or you're not looking at different perspectives and that person can make your approach more objective and minimize that bias yeah, uh, that's probably a good idea for yes. life in general, and uh, yeah, and pathology in general. I tend to be—I uh, don't know if it's our generation or if it's just my brain—but I tend to be someone who shows a lot of my cases to other people as well, even if I think I know the answer, just because. I don't want to be someone who goes into a rabbit hole or like becomes, you know, puts the blinders on. And Absolutely. I don't know if that makes sense, but I tend to show a lot of cases. Oh, so. me too. I, I hope I don't stop doing that. Yeah. I hope I keep my, keep humility into my Absolutely. Um, and golden years. Everything with research, with, you, yeah. with our clinical practice. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. We, we're yeah, very, good. you know, imperfect beings so yeah (laughs) yeah and uh especially in pathology it's not maybe like other 
fields of medicine quite as much because you can almost do it by yourself, the sign out part sometimes, and yeah. then it's good to be collaborative. Oh, just in a general sense. That's good life advice. See all this good life advice you're giving out for nothing. So another trend in GYM pathology is molecular techniques, which I know that you know well. Can you talk a little bit about where you see GYM pathology and the research in this field heading? Well, hard to say mm-hmm. to a point. I think at this point, there's a number of emerging technologies or emerging fields that are pulling GYM pathology in different directions. Uh, oh, okay. Molecular diagnostics or molecular biology is one of them, but you mm-hmm. have bioinformatics, uh, artificial mm-hmm. intelligence, in vivo microscopy and others. And even within the field of molecular biology, uh, things are moving beyond genomics uh, into gene expression, proteomics, methylation profiling, and a bunch of other things, right? Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating is that we're finding that it is worth exploring all these fields because they may offer different sets of answers. For example, when you're trying to classify ovarian cancer into biologically meaningful types, H&E and immunohistochemistry are enough in the vast majority of cases, right? Yeah. And we know there are like five types of ovarian cancer and they are, behave very differently and they have very different biology. And most of the times we're pretty good at distinguishing those with a light microscope, um, uh, microscope and immunohistochemistry. But that's not the same case in endometrial cancer, right? In endometrial mm-hmm. cancer, we know now that knowing about the molecular biology and the genomics of the disease can give you more meaningful information from the prognostic mm-hmm. and from the biologic point of view. And then right. you move into uterine sarcomas or gynecologic sarcomas, and you uh, find out that h and and IHC and even the genomics are really not enough. So you need to go beyond that. And we're finding things like methylation profile uh, that appear to be better discriminators for entities like that. So I think it, it is really, really important to keep an open mind when you think when you're trying to find the next step in in in, in research in our field of gynecologic pathology and and other fields in laboratory medicine. I particularly interested in seeing what where uh, this field of bioinformatics and uh, artificial intelligence is going to take us. I think breakthroughs in that arena are going to happen sooner or later. It's not just that, right? Like that probably will. Uh, have some improvements or show some answers for us in, in, in certain things, but that will not diminish in any way the contribution of genomics or the contribution of uh, proteomics into the field. Yeah, it's, it's just yeah. a, a bunch of things Thanks. will continue yeah. to happen. Yeah, it's hard to keep up. It's almost um, staggering. And when you look at the distribution of pathologists in the country, most people are not in academic medicine and not subspecialized in general. Mm-hmm. So yeah. one of the reasons I chose to go into academics is because I really felt like that was the way to really feel like I knew about something, right? Right. Uh, of Narrow course. your focus to deepen your confidence, basically. Exactly. Yeah. You know, now at the expense <laughs> of forgetting everything else about, uh-huh, uh-huh. about pretty much everything, right? <laughs> so I make you, I try to make you sign out a thyroid. You're like, no, thank you. No, oh, no, 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 no. I will be completely <laughs> incompetent about it. Please don't do that. <laughs> 
<laughs> I won't, I promise. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the, something I forgot to say, but felt uh -huh. mentioned when you were asking me about uh, what's my thought process or my method when I do research is like, uh -huh. usually when you, everything starts with a question and it could yeah. be simple. You usually comes up when you're looking at a case or with yes. discussing a case with somebody. And then you yeah. have a question, yeah, the logical step, it's all for me, it's always uh, look at the literature because most uh -huh. of the times, you know, somebody asked that question already Yes. and they yes. have the answer. <laughs> right. And then every once in a while you come upon something and you think, huh, there's a new technique I could apply to this question. But the beauty of that is you, uh, you learn something. Even if oh, yeah. that led to realizing that, oh, maybe this is not a good research endeavor for me at this point, at least right. learn something, right? Now you have yeah. a new seed in your brain that, that could flourish, <laughs> right? Or, and then or, like three other seeds fall out when that one goes in, that's just how it, it works. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, that's it. And the other thing I wanted to say is that uh -huh. uh, for someone invested in academia, learning about your writing skills and your communicational skills is mm -hmm. extremely important. Like, mm -hmm. uh, you, you have great communication skills because you're putting together this podcast and it's really showing everybody that you have those. I, on the other hand, like throughout the years had to build my, not only my oral communicational skills, but my written communicational skills. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's something that probably doesn't come natural to everybody. So if that's right. the case, seek uh, training. Like l there are courses in professional or scientific writing. Mm, uh, mm -hmm. That's uh, good advice. I, yeah. I never took one, but I know they exist. And mm -hmm. if you feel like that's what's stopping you or that's what's preventing you from getting further in academia, I, I, I would really, I, I always advise people to consider it. Yeah, that's good advice. Really oh, good advice. Absolutely. Yeah, you're a font of knowledge. I hope everyone's writing this stuff down. Um, <laughs> Try <laughs> anyway. <and> error. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Carlos. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Natalie. It was good to talk to you. Thanks. Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest and fellow GYM pathology specialist, Dr. Esther Oliva. Dr. Oliva went to medical school at the University of Barcelona in Spain and completed her pathology residency both in Spain at the Hospital de la Santa Cruz y São Paulo in Barcelona, Spain, and at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. She is a professor at Harvard Medical School and works as a pathologist at Mass General Hospital. She is widely published in the area of GYM pathology, edits textbooks, including the new impending WHO text on GYM tumors, teaches residents, fellows, and medical students, and is the president of the International Society of GYM Pathology, just to name a few of her accomplishments. This is part of my series cataloging our field of study of GYM pathology, so I've asked Dr. Oliva here today to talk more about this career and what's happening in our field now. So, Dr. Oliva, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Um, I'm well. Um, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure, uh, you know, to be here. Um, I think this is my first thought podcast ever. So, you know, just uh, <laughs> as I said yeah. before, not that computer savvy. So um, uh, let's <laughs> it's try just like it. Let's do it. it. 
Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Uh, so can you tell us more about yourself aside from the biographical things that I've said above and how you came to work where you do? Um, yes, um, I did, um, you know, medicine, uh, medical school in Barcelona. And um, and then uh, um, in Barcelona, you you know, in Spain, you have to actually to get into the residency. It's not like in the United States, you have to actually pass an exam, which is, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a state, you know, uh, exam. So everybody that finished medical school actually takes that exam. Mm-hmm. And um, it depends on your score on that exam and also the score that you have from your prior years uh, in the school that you get a number, right? And uh, okay. then depending on the number, you know, you get, you can choose the place that you go and, uh, you know, what you want to do. Or okay. maybe just what you want to do, or maybe just the place where you you want to do it, or maybe nothing, you know. So oh, um, okay. So it, it's kind of like I I I want to go to this city, and then the city will say, okay, well then you can do this kind of medicine. Well, it's just the hospital. Yeah. So the hospitals are paid by the government, right? So okay, like um, you know, there are like two thousand positions, let's say, right? Total in okay. Spain, and so there'll be. 54 pathology and you know in barcelona we offer like let's say 15 right or 10 or 5 depending on the year right okay so so you go and the numbers is from is the, the numbers are from 1 to 2050 so if you have you know i was actually <laughs> You know, whatever That's so the stressful. That's it is lot. very stressful because it's not the same as the actual interviewer, right? You you play everything at one chance, you know, six hours exam, and 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 that's 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 it. And is that um, still the way it works today? Yeah, it is. It is. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So it's very different from here. So you know, um, so you, if you if you have a good number, you can choose whatever you want, you know, in the place you want. But if your number is not so good, you know, then you're in trouble, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you have to rethink what you want to do. So you know, when I I got it, so you know, I only wanted to go to two hospitals in Barcelona. So the first one was taken by somebody else before me, and so I was praying to God that you know I would have been, you know, I could actually still get the second one that I I wanted to go to. So I was lucky in that regard, and then I picked, you know, the Hospital de la Santa Creu San Pau in Barcelona, and. Uh-huh. Um, and there, there was a very, you know, an absolutely amazing um, gynecologic pathologist, uh, Jaime Pratt. Oh, and, yeah. Um, yeah. So he's a very well-known GYN pathologist, right? He also uh-huh. trained at, partially at in New York, but also with Dr. Scali at MGH. So uh-huh. I happened to actually go with him. And, um, and so it's not that I actually... I picked GYM pathology is that, you know, I guess I did what he did. And because he, he was very good at GYM pathology. And then, you know, uh, he would share with us all his cases. He would let us, you know, look at his consult cases. You know, I actually started to help him, you know, in his talks and whatever he had to do. And this is the way I actually, I started my pathway in gynecologic pathology. So, it's not necessarily that I, you know, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I did not. 
Um, uh-huh. I, I did know what I did not want to do, <laughs> but okay. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But, you know, I, I did enjoy very much working, you know, with him and, 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 uh, and he happened to be doing, uh, you know, gynecologic pathology. So I kind of followed his, uh, in a way, his steps. You know, we, all the people that were actually training under him, you know, uh, we would be biased, you know, uh, towards oh. GYM pathology because that was he, you know, that's what he did, you know. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how I ended up where I did it. it my residency program had a large volume of GYN and, and lots of people who did it very well. And it was sort of like I saw them doing it well. And then I kind of fell into that being yes. what I was interested in. So did you always know you wanted to be a pathologist? Well, uh, no. Okay. At, at the beginning, I wanted to be uh, something completely different, an endocrinologist. Oh, well, I mean, GYM pathology has a lot of endocrinology in it. (laughs) Yes, you're right, actually. But I know I kind of liked very much all the, you know, like the path, like the, you know, feedback, you know, the hormonal, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff. And then talking, you know, talking to a doctor in my hospital, and maybe this is not, you know, kind of, it's very basic to say, but he kind of looked at me and said, you know, do you want like to always kind of be with diabetic people and, you know, and, and, you know, which is the bulk of people that you get to see, you know, when as sure. a technologist. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, not necessarily so. And then I kind of rethought again what I you know, liked when I did, you know, medical school and I had to spend extra time actually in pathology um, mm-hmm. during my medical school and I, and I like it very much. So then I kind of decided to um, do uh, pathology. So mm-hmm. it's, it's not, it never was like the first thing, you know, that I thought of because most of the time when you, when you do medical school, you know, your first, you forget your first years, you know, you kind of uh, go into your last years is when you are actually have the contact with the patients, you know, you do surgery, internal medicine, right. you know, whatever. And uh, clinical things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And those yeah. are the things that kind of stick more. And when you think about doing and, but if you, then, you know, if something happens, you really think about it. And so I, I, I um, chose uh, pathology and I always say that this is, you know, one of the best decisions in my, in my life. So I'm actually very happy that I chose pathology. That's great. So how did you end up coming to the States? Was that a, a decision that Dr. Pratt played a role in since he had been, you said, partially involved with MGH in some way? That is correct. Yeah, yeah. yes, very well. I, you know, I am from Barcelona, as as I told you, and I never thought I was going to leave my home. But still, now my home is Barcelona, even though I mm-hmm. live in Boston now for twenty seven years. But, and but you still uh, don't think of it as your home. Yeah, my home <laughs> is still, a long time. My real home is still Barcelona. But uh, okay, okay. Uh, Jaime Prat, you know, he had been here for several years, and. Uh, and when he went back, he always actually offered us the possibility of coming to United States. And I think that's something that we have to be thankful to him because, you know, not everybody would offer that possibility, you know, t- uh, to trainees. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, he had been here and he knew a lot of people. And of course, he asked me if I wanted to come. And I said, uh, first, I said, I have to think about it. And, and I thought about it uh, for a long time, probably like two months or two months and a half. And then I went back to his office and I said, okay, I thought about it. I'm going to go, but only for one year, I told him. 
And you can never say what you are going to do and what you are not going to do because you always do the opposite, right? (laughs) And then you're on the record and then, you know, then you've said it and then 27 years later. That's correct. You know, so when I came, I actually was Dr. Young's first fellow. And, um, and, you know, and I, of course, I had learned tons in Barcelona with Dr. Brad, but mm-hmm. if in Barcelona I would see two or three granulosa cell tumors a year, here I would, mm-hmm. see, I would see three a week, right? And exactly. I, yeah. And I thought, gee, a year is not enough, Esther, you need more, you know? And, mm-hmm. uh, and then I said, okay, two years. And, and then one thing, you know, brought the other, and then... Um, I, you know, I did the two years of fellowship first as a foreign uh, medical person, and then I did uh, two years of residency, and then the, and then I stayed. And then you stayed, yeah. So how was that? I wonder how that experience was different for you. I guess you said you started off as a fellow, and then you were a resident. Yeah. I, it, it seems to me like doing a second residency, you must be able to have a completely different experience than those people who are going through it for the first time. Because when you were a, a first year resident in the States, you were a PGY six at that point, or I don't even know. It's hard to count. So what was that like? Were you pretty much just, did you see that as a more of a transition from fellowship and that, but then you had to go back and learn things like autopsy, right? Like you had to repeat everything. I had to repeat everything. Like, yeah. But I I had the advantage that I had been already two years here. Right. right? Okay. And so I kind of, I knew the system, right? Right. I, I, the, the, the most difficult part was the language. Uh, ah, no, okay. because one thing is just to speak English like I'm talking to you now, right? Uh-huh. And then the other thing is to know all the medical terms for, um, sure. for example, um, osteoarthritis, you know, and then they you, right. have a, you have a knee, you know, and you have to describe if there are, you know, <laughs> oh, just all those words that you don't use anywhere else but a gross description. Yeah, I know what you're right. saying. Exactly. So <laughs> okay. I, need to, I needed to ask all my, you know, fellow residents, you know, can you help uh-huh. me with this? Right. You know, what I, I can help you with the knowledge if you can give me the words because That's correct. Yeah, I've so been here. Yeah. It was like I, that. But, you know, I mean, I was thinking it was interesting because I, I used to say, I, you know, everybody is going back, uh, no, forward and I'm going backwards, right? Because I was first year fellow, fellow then, second year, yeah. year fellow and I started with the first year residents at that time right. in 93 and when they were third years I was first year you know so. right yeah but I I mean and think about how different your experience would have been if you'd had Google Translate or something where you could have just like <laughs> yes. gone off to the side <laughs> I, I mean I learned Spanish Exactly. I learned Spanish back in the day before there was Google. And I just remember having the English to Spanish and Spanish to English dictionaries just in they would just move from room to room in my house, you know, and I just I guess people just don't do that anymore. I think you probably just can do it all on your phone now. So um, totally different time. I did want to talk to you a little bit about your work day. So can you walk through people for people who are not familiar with, say, someone of your stature at a large um, academic center what are your days like and I, I know every day probably differs but just like a, a typical day when you it go into like work anybody you... else I mean we yeah. are all pathologists right so yeah. my, my day is like your day and anybody mm-hmm. else's day so I have my stack of cases to look stack at of cases. And, okay. and 
<laughs> which varies depending because I cover GYN and GU pathology, and uh-huh. and so you know, like right right this week, I'm on you know GYN is small and GU is small, and so I have residents with me, you know, signing out. I oftentimes also have foreign people coming, you know, to stay, so they also sit down with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the mornings are typically to sign out. I can also mm-hmm. be sometimes in the frozen section, you know. People mm-hmm. come to show me cases. I also go to show cases to other people if I need to, because um, mm-hmm. you know we all need somebody else's you know uh, help sometimes. And yes. uh, then you know we have either outs conference or I have consensus conference. And then uh, oftentimes in the afternoons you have meetings or I have to work on uh, you know on articles or you know academic work or I have to um, you know consoles of mine so it's you know it's mostly it's mostly the morning is more of the of the regular you know day-to-day work right and then in mm-hmm. the afternoon is more of the uh meetings that you have to be part of the department or in the hospital uh you know uh, meetings for um projects that you are doing looking at the consoles doing you know all these kind of things mm-hmm. so i, I mm-hmm. think it's the day that from many many people right Yes. Although you seem to be very productive. Maybe you're the kind of person who can work on a research paper for 15 minutes here and 45 minutes there. So no, I, I don't know. No, Sometimes no. I like to just lock the door and tell people, I please not. don't bother me for a few hours. You know, like no, it's hard. I have been, yeah. I just work tons of hours. Okay. Okay. Up, up okay. to now, my schedule used to be coming to work at seven o'clock and leave eight o'clock PM and uh, come to work Saturdays and Sundays. So um, that's what I say. My, I like the thought. I mean, I, I like what I do because otherwise I would, it would be a nightmare. Right. Uh, right. I also, right. I don't have a husband. I don't have kids. So I, my, my schedule is also more flexible than other people right. can have, you know? So, but you know, this is not about, being being fast, being very smart, it's just being is about actually spending the hours, you know what I'm saying? At least for me. Yes. Yes. And I, I think everyone is different, but I also am a put my head down and get the work kind of person, though I'm sure you know people and I know people who can get through their stack in an hour and a half or two hours. And they're just, it's yes. just like their brains just work differently than mine. It's just yes. not who I am. So I've gotten over that a long time ago. <laughs> so you are widely published in the area of GYN pathology. I think that's putting it mildly. It seems that you focus in part on mesenchymal tumors, um, among other topics. Can you tell me what your experience was like getting started in research and how you came to focus where you focused? So Again, you'll find me very boring, but I started started because, you know, when I came here to my Uh channel, you know, I actually helped Dr. Yang to work on, you know, on a paper on the small cell carcinoma of the hypercalcemic type that at that Mm -hmm. time he, you know, he was working on. And then, and then um, I think cases came through to uh, his consultations, uh, um, you know, uh, files and also through Dr. Scully's files that we started to see these um, highly cellular lyomyomas, right? That people mm-hmm. who come and, and ask, you know, are these endometrial stromal tumors? And, uh, and it started, this is the way it started. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like pattern uh, recognition, yeah. Yes, yeah. and then, you know, that was my first paper. You know, I still have, you know, the pages corrected by um, Dr. Scali all in red, you know, and uh, 
more people, not just, you know, as, <laughs> you know, multiple all... drafts. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and this is, this is how I started to work on, mesen- on you know, to have an interest in mesenchymal tumors. At that time, there were actually not many people that had an interest on, on, on that. Most people actually work on, on, on epithelial tumors. Right. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. um, I started that way and then I continue and because they actually had many consoles with material, you know, yeah. and also the material from the hospital. So I was able to to start building on uh, this um, particular subject. Okay. Yeah. And I, I will say uh, anecdotally from being a GYM pathology for two years, I would say that a lot of the consults, I don't know if I could give it a percentage, maybe a quarter of the cases were uterine mesenchymal tumors, especially smooth muscle tumors, because yeah. folks see them a lot and there are uh, features that warrant outside consultation more often than maybe people would realize. But um, I told, I joked with my co-fellows that I spent a lot of time counting my toses, but it was... Um, you know, it was a good learning experience, but someone has to do it well. So, I, um, I, I, really I, do, I do too. I count many of my doses, you know, and many I many see how, how people sometimes can get bored, you know, and, yeah, uh, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's maybe that's why it's not so many people actually do it. Right. I, I Discipline. Do, yeah, exactly. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I call those, um, I think I heard someone lecture on this one time, like I call those either um, full cup of coffee cases because you like to just like sit down and like really concentrate. You can't be interrupted. But yeah, it's um, it's good work and <laughs> it does require <laughs> diligence. So. Um, so I noticed that your CV is full not only with first and senior author papers, but also with collaborative efforts. Can you talk about this process and what it's like for you? Now that I've, I've assumed since you've been at MGH for a period of time that people reach out to you, but what is it like uh, and what is the difference for you between those two kinds of projects? Well, it's not only that people reach out to me. I also reach out to people, you know, I mean, mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. it's a two-way uh, process, right? I mean, I think there are things that you can do on, you know, you, you may want to do on your own, but I think actually I've learned with time that, you know, doing things in collaboration with other people also brings you a different perspective of how people look at things. You also learn other ways of doing things that you would not have thought of. And, you know, they can do things that you cannot do, you know? So, um, mm-hmm. so I, you know, I, I actually, you know, at the beginning, I, I was more confined to just, you know, working with at MGH. Uh, mm-hmm. But then I, I, I thought, you know, I could do even better work, right, with other people, right? Because, uh, right. as I said, you, you, you know, you get to discuss things. People have ideas that I don't have, uh, mm-hmm. or vice versa. It, it only kind of um, helps to make it better, you know. So, yeah. to me, um, doing collaborations uh, with people it has always been um, actually something good and uh, something that I, 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 I like to do. Yeah. And I have to imagine it's easier to do now than, say, 20 years ago when you can share documents much more easily. Um, You know, you're someone who's very involved in research. And it seems like looking back, if you look at the sort of way that GYM pathology research is developing, something like breast pathology was uh, ahead of us in terms of applying molecular techniques to diagnosis and prognosis. But it seems like GYM is catching up very quickly. Can you talk about where you see GYM pathology research heading? 
Yes, I'll tell you two things. May, uh, you know, I think maybe also, and there's nothing to, you know, like to, to, to say something bad about, uh, you know, the past, but I actually do think that now, you know, we are working more as a group of people, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I think we are doing more collaborations. And also this has brought, you know, we th this has brought us to a better position, you know? Mm -hmm. We are we have been able to find things that, because we have put material together that before, right. you know, you couldn't do it in with 10 cases, with 20 cases, right? You know, so mm -hmm. I think working together, right, it's actually help us to move forward. And this, yes. uh, you know, you can see that, in, uh, you know, in the endometrial carcinoma uh, field, mm -hmm. right? In ovarian carcinoma field, I think you will start to see that now. You, you start to see it in, in also in the mesenchymal tumors of the uterus. But right. the, it, it always, it only has happened, I think, because, you know, we, we are collaborating together, you know, right. and, 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 and we are actually putting ideas together, we're putting material together, and, uh, and then, you know, we are able to also correlate the molecular findings with, uh, you know, with the, you know, histologic findings that, you know, and, uh, and now we are able in, in many cases to kind of use the morphologic features as a surrogate marker of what you are supposed to find molecularly, right? So right. Uh, molecular, you uh, know, is, is actually helping us to, um, I think, shape also our molecular findings and, and, and continue to actually move uh, this, uh, our right. field, you know, uh, forward in a way. Right. And sort of mirror the journey that has been going on in soft tissue pathology for, you know, a decade at least, maybe That's more than right. that, of the recurrent, you know, cytogenetic and genetic findings and molecular findings that end up driving patient treatment with targeted therapies. And it's exciting because in, in, you know, in GYN pathology, sometimes those those targeted therapies just weren't an option for these patients. That's right. so, and, and you yeah. also, you know, like there was soft tissue, you know, GU, you know, breast would have also, you know, um, not only just molecular, but we'll have consensus conference between them, right? And uh, right. In, in, in a way, it, it's another... It's another, uh, you know, part of the of the puzzle, right? And and right. and to help people, you know, to to do bet, a better job. And I think now, you know, we are trying to do the same thing in in the GYN field. And I'm very happy that you know that that's that's happening, you know. And so it's I think everything together now that is kind of moving, you know. It's just which is nice to see. It is nice to see. So, Dr. Oliva, that's all the questions I have. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Um, thank you again for inviting me. And it has been also a pleasure um, to talk to you, Natalie. Yeah. Thank you. Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome... A uh, special guest and fellow GYN pathology specialist, Dr. Blake Jilks. Dr. Jilks attended the University of New Brunswick and earned his MD at Dalhousie University, followed by a residency in anatomical pathology at the University of British Columbia, and fellowships in gynecological pathology and molecular pathology at Massachusetts General Hospital and Fox Chase Cancer Center in Boston and Philadelphia, respectively. He is widely published in the area of GYN pathology and has contributed to texts and collaborative efforts worldwide. He is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at the University of British Columbia and the past president of the International Society of GYN Pathologists. 
Dr. Jilks is here today as a part of my series on GYN pathology, where I am talking to leaders in the field about why they chose this area and what is happening in our field now. Dr. Jilks, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Uh, fine, thank you. Um, thank you for the invitation. Great to be here virtually. Yeah, yeah, it's nice to hear other people's voices, although uh, in-person meetings are missed for sure. So could you tell us about yourself, aside from the biographical info I've given above and how you came to be working in the role you're in now? Sure. So the brief story is I'm an accidental academic pathologist. I, I was going to be a family doctor in a small town, was for a while, but as one does sometimes get married to someone who is academically inclined. My wife is the Dean of Graduate Studies at the University of British Columbia, a skill set that doesn't really lend itself to living in a small town. So I looked for a specialty. I liked pathology because the people there were very smart, very nice, uh, not necessarily something I was seeing in other specialties. So I went in for perhaps unusual reasons, but immediately mm -hmm. felt it was a fit. Mm -hmm. And in December 1985, woke up one day knowing that I wanted to do breast and gynae pathology. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've never really understood why in the past I would have assigned some rationale to that reason. But I think as I've grown older and understood the complexity of how our brains work a little better, I should just admit, I don't really know why, but I've been very okay. happy with the decision since then. Uh-huh. What portion of your training were you in when you came to that decision? Were you a resident at the time? I was a resident, just finishing first year in general pathology, which would be mm -hmm. CP in the States. So I switched that day and into mm -hmm. the program director, switched to AP. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, that was it. And that was, that was history. I okay. wanted to focus on this area. Uh -huh. I think um, that took me 10 years to get to a hospital that had a gynae oncologist working at it. So it, it was a not a direct route, but yeah. I eventually made it there. That's a journey. It's interesting that you're um, a professor emeritus. Uh, it'll be interesting to hear your answer to this question because I don't know what that means in terms of what you're doing. So what maybe say before you were um, in the role you're in now compared to what you're doing now, what does your normal work day look like, say, when you were a professor, and then how has how have things changed for you? So I retired mm -hmm. a bit early. Um, I was the medical director of laboratories for our healthcare region and became frustrated with not being able to make things happen, the ability to change things for the better that I saw needed. So I retired, and at that point, 15% of my salary was paid by the university, thus the professor part. Mm -hmm. And I continued to do, continue to do academic work, but they don't pay me. That's what emeritus means, is unpaid, I mm. believe, Latin translation. <laughs> um, so the academic work is unchanged. Okay. I've been but then in March, I got a phone call because mm -hmm. of the pandemic. Mm-hmm asking me to come back to work to be the lead for our province for COVID testing. So po population of 5 million. Um, okay. So I've been doing no that. No small job. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's sort of like working, um, but the 
different than what I was doing before retirement, quite, quite different. So you're in charge of more of a laboratory testing um, focus right now because of the pandemic, but in general, you're still doing your academic work with pathology and research and things like that. That's interesting. Yeah, um, paper uh-huh. earlier this week. It's, it's that part, the fun part continues on. That's good. And are you still doing clinical casework in, in terms of sign out and um, routine GYN and even breast pathology, or is it mostly just research at this point for you? Given up. Uh, when I moved to, to the hospital with Gynonx, I, I lost the breast cancer surgeons as part of the deal. Um, mm-hmm. so I've been doing Gynepath up until March when pandemic response has taken me out of sign out work altogether. I intend okay. to get back to it as soon as possible, but okay. things just aren't settling down. Things are settling down? Aren't, no. no. They certainly aren't in the United States. I thought maybe in Canada it was a bit different for you all. So you still are devoting a, a lot of time to the testing aspect right now? Yes, it, it's yeah. sort of behind the scenes. The, the supply chain is very weak, getting reagents, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Problematic. The swabs. Right. Uh, manufacturer that supplied the world wasn't able to keep up that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So work is busy, but it mm-hmm. is going okay here, pandemic-wise. Right. Moving back so- to full OR slates and stuff like that. So, oh, that's good to hear. I look forward to getting back to gyne Sino. I really enjoy that. Definitely. I mean, this time, this year has not been, I don't think, what any of us pictured it being. So, no. Um, I, to understand completely. Yes, <laughs> the last hint of normalcy, and we had no idea what was about to hit us when we were in Los Angeles for the meeting. It's it's been quite a year so far. So it's interesting that when you talk about why you chose GYN pathology, you say that uh, you've admitted now that you don't know. I I've noticed some people say they just like you woke up one day and said, "This is what I want to do with myself." Some people say. I knew this other person who did it and they did it well. And I thought I can do that too. So was there anyone in your training or experience who you can point to who maybe was a role model for you? Or like you say, you just December, 1985 woke up one day and said, this is it for me. Definitely. So Phil Mm -hmm. Clement was at Vancouver Mm -hmm. General Hospital Mm -hmm. and just retired at the start of the pandemic after 50 years in pathology. Fabulous pathologist, a fine gentleman. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that was a major motivator because I knew I could get really world-class education at Vancouver during my residency in mm-hmm. these areas where he was a specialist. And I, I did. And he helped as a mentor immensely. I never imagined I'd go back. Why would they hire me when they had him? But these things happen. So I ended up being his boss. There's that old adage that be careful uh, how you interact with the trainees because one of them will be your boss someday. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Very, very uh, special to have someone like that, that, that okay. follow the, their path, including to the Mass General where he'd done his residency with Scully. Right. Right, right, exactly. And he, yeah, it's obviously very well known and also a very well-timed retirement, if I do say so. 
myself. <laughs> so you're widely published in the area of GYM mythology, to put it mildly. It seems like you're, you're, Areas of interest are pretty varied, but you seem to, in some ways, focus on immunohistochemistry and then also things like endometrial and ovarian cancer. And you're also involved in collaborative efforts and have grant-funded projects. So for those who are thinking about pathology or thinking about GYM pathology, can you just tell us a little bit what it was like to get started in research and how you came to place your focus where you've placed it? Sure. Um this is a cautionary tale. Don't do what I did. So I went to Fox Chase. I ended up in what looked like an interesting lab. It was about um, T-cell antigen recognition in the early days. Uh, by the time I left the lab, the person who led it had gone to law school, and I inherited the project to take back to Vancouver. So I, I, I had a lab-based project in mice, immunology, um, but it, although I was successful getting funding, it really was not what I was interested in. So my clinical work was in gynae path. I needed to bring them closer together so my clinical work and research aligned better, and that's what took 10 years, slow learner. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, with um, molecular biology progressing so rapidly and the ability to get whole genome sequencing, the ability to look at human tumors took off. Up until about 2005, the biggest study we could do was whole sections on 30 cases with one or two markers. Then TMAs, tissue microarrays, came along. No right. problem. Look at 4,000 breast cancers. And so the ability to look broadly, but also to look deep, so to look at whole genomes with adult granulosa cell tumor, we sequenced four tumors and we found the key mutation because mm -hmm. it's in every one of them. So right. the one in three billion nucleotides that had changed came out of a careful look that was driven by morphology. We knew this was a tumor that had to have some underlying genetic abnormality. It was not one of the usual drivers near diploid or diploid. Let's look at it. And contrary to current wisdom at the time that said you had to look at hundreds of tumors with whole genomes to learn anything. It only took four cases to right. figure out what was driving it. So the timing was right. The, the, the genetic tools came available to look at human tumors, left mice behind, and haven't looked back. It's been all human tumors. And I think the unifying theme is to take our morphological classifications and refine them with molecular markers, whether they're immunostains or genetic tests. Mm -hmm. And as someone who has been so successful in the area of academic pathology, did you have basic science laboratory training, what we would consider in the States more like PhD type training? Or did you, in the process of doing your AP residency, sort of um, absorb this from people that you were around? How was that for you? So my chief collaborator, David Huntsman, and I, neither of us have an undergraduate science degree, mm -hmm. much less a graduate degree. And we hear this a little bit from my wife, who's the dean of graduate studies, who points out <laughs> if we'd finished our undergraduate degree, we might have been more successful. So <laughs> it's been very much learn as you go. And... 
I see the benefits of graduate education. I think I vicariously benefited from my wife's PhD. She did it with Michael Smith, a Nobel laureate in chemistry. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't have to do it myself. (laughs) I didn't have to write out the thesis. And I appreciated that a lot as well. So really, for both David and I, it's learn as you go, be aware of the technology, know your limitations, and talk to the people who are on the cutting edge and look to apply it in your own area of interest, which I think we've done in gynae pathology successfully in collaboration with people at the Genome Sciences Center uh, who truly are world world leaders. It seems that molecular techniques are catching up in the area of GYN pathology, whereas compared to something like breast pathology, where I think that was driven not only by funding in that area, but also just the fact that the tumors are more common. But it's happening now in GYN, so for prognosis and for diagnosis. So can you talk where you see about how you see GYN pathology changing and also in which, which directions you think research in this area is heading? Sure. I, I think the broad molecular classifications are pretty much falling falling into place with IECC with HPV versus non-HPV vulvar cancer, the TCGA-based classification of endometrial cancer. turns mm-hmm. out the ovary, the cell type diagnoses when applied accurately reflects the underlying genomic architecture, predicts response to treatment, all of that. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that we're ahead of breast pathology. Mm-hmm. So breast pathology, they're still waiting to diagnose basal-like breast cancers in practice 15, oh, 20 years after uh, Pat Brown described it based on the RNA expression profiles. Mm-hmm. That, that pains me so because that is a completely distinct entity, whereas in mm-hmm. Gynae, we're there. And now we can start to refine it further. So high-grade serous cancer in the fall, it turns out the PARP inhibitors are active there is no subset of high-grade serous 2 ovarian high-grade serous that PARPA inhibitors did not show an effect against as first-line mm-hmm. treatment. A remarkable result is not just the BRCA mutant, not just the ones that uh, have homologous recombination deficiency by whatever assay you choose to use. It was very, very gratifying to see that our morphological classification is it, uh, and we perhaps under estimate how important it has been because we weren't that good in the 90s uh, we didn't classify ovarian cancers accurately we called things endometrioid in philadelphia that we would call serous in boston and right they, we know now they're high-grade serous we didn't separate low-grade serous which is a completely different disease we're getting mm-hmm. all that now you younger folk don't realize how much progress it's been because it looks subtle because the names are the same WHO has carried the same names for it, but completely different landscape. So clinical trial from 2003 for ovarian cancer, 56% of the diagnoses that Frieder Comos made in 2003 were the same when he reviewed them in 2014 with the new WHO. Mm-hmm. But 97% of the new diagnoses were the same as mine when I looked at them. Independent. Mm-hmm. We never worked together. We just followed the criteria. That's a huge difference. And that means right. you can have clinical trials on that basis. You can treat patients on that basis. 
they have a high grade serous here, they'll have one when they go to Tuvingen, and you know the, the treatment will be the same. It opens right. the door for all of the advances of modern oncology is the diagnostic part. And that's that's what we've been able to deliver in Gynae Path. Lots still to do. It's an exciting time for young people to be in this field. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it's just convincing clinicians that our diagnoses are that good. Some of the older yeah. ones in particular have been through the era where it was quite random. Right. And I can I can empathize. I have done uh, several deep dives working on research projects and going back to some of the papers from the 90s. Sometimes it is kind of a wild ride um, <laughs> when they, you know, like they'll do a immunohistochemical marker on, uh, they'll just say high grade ovarian cancer. And you're asking yourself, what is what is that? You know, like, is that, is that serious? Is that endometrioid? Is it clear cell? I mean, it probably in truth was maybe all of those things. I hadn't heard that. Uh, I always think of us as sort of the uh, younger sibling of breast cancer because it's just so much more common, like I said, and and it's it's been out there longer, but the idea of reproducibility um, is, it's huge. So I think those are all the questions I have for you. I really appreciate you joining me today. I know it's very early where you are, and it's been a real pleasure. Did you have anything you wanted to add before we're finished? No, I just, uh, my wish would be that young people like you have as enjoyable a career as I have had. It's been a great ride. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Okay.